This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. I want to start at the, at the beginning of your career uh, in the 1980s. You, I guess you, you started out as a, as a public defender, right? I did. Um, I became a public defender immediately upon graduating from law school. And what was, what was the idea behind it? You thought, OK, I'm going to be a public defender and I'm going to help people who are defendants in criminal cases. That's right. And I, like lots of people, had no idea what was going on in our criminal legal system. In my third year in law school, um, I joined the criminal defense clinic at NYU and stepped into Manhattan criminal court and never was able to look away again. This is Robin Steinberg. What I saw so shocked me that I thought, this can't be happening in our country and we can't possibly think this passes for justice. Um, And I committed myself to then becoming a public defender where I spent most of my career. There's a a story that we tell ourselves about our justice system, that it's blind, that it's just. Everyone is treated equally under the law. But it's not true. Well, what you begin to realize very, very early on as a public defender is how we define crime, how policing occurs in this country, who we're prosecuting in our state local courts is deeply, deeply defined by class and by race. And so I just wanted to fight for each and every one of my clients as hard as I could. But definitely you were pushing up against an enormous, expansive criminal legal system that was not just crushing my individual clients, but their families and their entire communities. Here's more from Robin Steinberg on the TED stage. Freedom. A concept so fundamental to the American psyche that it is enshrined in our Constitution. And yet... America is addicted to imprisonment. From slavery through mass incarceration, it always has been. We all know the shocking numbers. The United States incarcerates more people per capita than almost any nation on the planet. But what you may not know is that on any given night in America, almost half a million people go to sleep in those concrete jail cells who have not been convicted of anything. These mothers and fathers and sons and daughters are there for one reason and one reason only. They cannot afford to pay the price of their freedom. And that price is called bail. How much does it generally cost to to post bail? So when somebody is arrested, um, judges can set bail in an amount um, in their own discretion. I have seen it as low as $100 for the people that we represent and the clients that we see. Bail is typically under $5,000, but that is way beyond the reach of most families. Their families are making decisions about buying a gallon of milk for their children or putting that money towards bail. It's inconceivable to lots of Americans that you can't just go to an ATM machine and pull out $500. But that's the reality for most people coming through the criminal legal system. So if you are charged with crime and um, you're going to have a court hearing, it could be four or five months in the future, if you can't post bail, you're, you're stuck in a jail. That's correct. Once bail gets set, if you can't pay your bail, you're going to have to wait until one of two things happens. You're either going to plead guilty to go home. Hmm. The other possibility is that you demand your hearing and your trial, and that wait can be anything from weeks to months to years, and that is not an exaggeration. There are people waiting in local jails across this country who have been sitting there for years waiting to get their day in court, which we all believe in America is what you're just entitled to, but you're not, unless you wait for a very, very long time. We tend to have this vision of justice as blind and impartial and fair, but in practice, the law often fails those who need it most. So today on the show, we're going to explore ideas about hacking the law 
how lawyers and activists are trying to change the legal system in some radical ways to make it more fair, more representative, and more just. And Robin Steinberg, she wants to change the way bail works in the U.S. today because she says it creates a two-tiered system, one for the rich and one for everyone else. Let's talk for a moment about what it means to be in jail even for a few days. Well, it can mean losing your job, losing your home, jeopardizing your immigration status. It may even mean losing custody of your children. What's more, if you're held in jail on bail, you are four times more likely to get a jail sentence than if you had been free, and that jail sentence will be three times longer. And if you are Black or Latino and cash bail has been set, you are two times more likely to remain stuck in that jail cell than if you were white. Now imagine for just one moment that it's you stuck in that jail cell, and you don't have the $500 to get out. And someone comes along and offers you a way out. Just plead guilty, they say. You can go home back to your job. Just plead guilty. You can kiss your kids goodnight tonight. So you do what anybody would do in that situation. You plead guilty whether you did it or not. But now, you have a criminal record that's going to follow you for the rest of your life. So we've interviewed really some really innovative thinkers about how to reform the criminal justice system. Um, and you came upon a, a really simple way to kind of hack it, to kind of look at this and say, wait a minute, there could be a simpler way to start to tackle this. Can you tell me how you came to that idea? Sure. So uh, my husband and I were actually sitting, having dinner one night many, many years ago. Uh, he's also a, was a public defender. And we were venting about watching one more client plead guilty so she could go home. And my husband said, you know, we should just start paying bail for our clients. We should start a bail fund and just start paying their bail. And in that moment, the idea was born. We weren't sure whether we could do it. We weren't sure what the results would be. But we knew that we had something there that if you could attack this problem at the front end, we might be able to actually begin to unpack some of the injustice. So you, you guys got to work? You started to raise money? We did. So we, we pitched the idea for a very long time and um, had a very hard time getting anybody to um, give us any donations for the bail fund. And then I met Jason Flom and his father, Joe Flom, and they had a family foundation. And they were courageous enough to be our very first donors. And they gave us a donation of $100,000 to start the Bronx Freedom Fund. And we began to pay people's bail with that fund. And what we learned is the revolving nature of a bail fund is that a dollar that you use in a year can be used two or three times because at the end of a criminal case, the bail comes back into the fund. Uh, I would be bold enough to say that some of those dollars that the Flom family gave us way back when is probably still operating in the Bronx today. So when, when, when somebody posts bail and they go to trial and their case is dismissed, that bail money is returned. So bail money gets returned regardless of the case outcome. Um, the point of bail is to ensure that people come back to court. Ah. So if somebody comes back to court for each and every court appearance, at the end of the case, whether it was a guilty plea, whether it was a conviction, or whether it was a complete acquittal or a dismissal, the bail money comes back. So it can revolve over and over again if you create a fund. So how does it work? I mean, you you have teams of people who would go to a jail and say, don't plead guilty. We can help post bail for you. And is that kind of how it works? So the most important work gets done by our local people on the ground who we call bail disruptors, many of whom have been formerly incarcerated or impacted by the criminal legal system themselves. They work on the ground to interview people in jails. And what we've learned from the Bronx Freedom Fund is that all you need to ensure that people come back to court is effective ways to notify them about their next court dates and to provide some support systems while they're out of jail and to connect them to services that might exist in the community so when problems come up that might prevent them from coming back to court we can help them solve that problem. Over the past 10 years, we have been paying bills for low-income residents of New York City, and what we have learned have exploded our ideas of why people come back to court and how the criminal legal system itself is operating. Turns out, money isn't what makes people come back to court. 
We know this because when the Bronx Freedom Fund pays bail, 96% of clients return for every court appearance. It's powerful evidence that we don't need cash or ankle bracelets or unnecessary systems of surveillance and supervision. We simply need court reminders about when to come back to court. Next, we learned that if you're held in jail on a misdemeanor, 90% of people will plead guilty. But when the fund pays bail, over half the cases are dismissed. And in the entire history of the Bronx Freedom Fund, fewer than 2% of our clients have ever received a jail sentence of any kind. It sounds like, over the course of your career, you've sort of come to the conclusion that the system needs massive reform, but that may be a decades-long struggle. And in the meantime, one way to attack it is by attacking bail, is by dealing with the bail issue. Yeah, the way I like to think about it is this, right? While we're thinking through ways uh, for systemic reform to happen, while litigators are litigating cases, while policy reformers are doing their work, people sitting in jail cells today, they need a lifeline. We can't ask them to sit in those cold concrete jail cells while we talk about systemic reform. It takes too long. So when we think about revolving bail funds, when we think about the bail project or the Bronx Freedom Fund or the community bail funds that exist around this country, that is an immediate lifeline to those folks sitting in those jail cells as we hope to continue to ignite and move systemic reform forward. Yeah. I mean, when we think about, like, you know, examples of criminal justice or or injustice in America, you know, like vigilante justice or the way people behaved in in the Wild West. And we think, God, you know, what an uncivilized time. Like we think we're we're just so much more evolved and and civilized in the way that we deal with this now, but but we're not. So we're kidding ourselves. Um, And I know that that is very hard for all of us to grapple with because all of us are implicated in what has become our criminal legal system. Um, You know, we seem to have in this country an insatiable appetite for incarceration. Uh, We seem to have in this country a very harsh mentality around punishment. So we have used our criminal legal system to solve social problems that we used to look at as all of our responsibilities. And instead, we have pushed it away from our consciousness as if it didn't implicate all of us. But of course it does. That's Robin Steinberg. In November of 2017, she relaunched the Bronx Freedom Fund with a new name, The Bail Project. The goal is to expand to 40 cities nationwide. You can see Robin's entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about hacking the law. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to E-Trade. Are you ready to make moves with your money? Invest with E-Trade, and you'll see how simple investing can be. No matter your level of experience, E-Trade's easy-to-use platform keeps you in the know about your money every step of the way. But it's not just their platform that sets them apart. E-Trade has the people to offer guidance and support to make your money work hard for you. For more information, visit eTrade.com slash NPR. E-Trade Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Thanks also to Capital One. With the new Capital One Saver Card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out that new restaurant everyone's talking about and 4% on watching your team win at home. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, N.A. This week, the history. Every gay person must come out. The meaning. Ellen, are you coming out or not? And your stories of coming out. You like other men? Why? On the latest episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about hacking the law to better serve everyone. And for animal rights lawyer Stephen Wise, 
That means changing laws to better serve non-human animals, like apes. Here's Stephen Wise on the TED stage. I'd like to have you look at this pencil. It's a thing. It's a legal thing. And so are books you might have or the cars you own. They're all legal things. The great apes that you'll see behind me, they too are legal things. Now, I can, I can do that to a legal thing. I can do whatever I want to my book or my car. These great apes, you'll see. The photographs were taken by a man named James Mollison, who wrote a book called James and Other Apes. And he tells in his book how almost every one of them is an orphan, saw his mother, father die before his eyes. They're legal things. So, so what's actually the difference between a, a legal thing and, like, a, a legal person? Well, since Roman times, a thing has been an entity who lacks the capacity for legal rights. It can be a pencil, it can be a computer, it can be a human being at the, at the time of slavery. But a person is an entity who has the capacity for one or more legal rights. At one time, it was uh, defined in a very narrow way. You mean like you mean like men, or actually free men were persons, but slaves were not, sometimes women were not, sometimes children were not. Now, uh, all human beings are considered to be persons. So a thing does not have legal rights, right? And a person does. And basically now all humans are legal persons. But I guess it's more complicated than that, right? Because like in the U.S., corporations are considered to be legal persons. Uh, they are indeed. So can you explain how that works? So a person and thing are both terms of art, and that's up to legislatures and courts as to what or who those entities are. So, for example, in the last few years, the New Zealand parliament has designated a river as a person who has real legal rights. A national park has real legal rights. The Columbia Supreme Court has said that the Amazon rainforest in the country of Colombia is a person who has real legal rights. And Stephen Wise sees these recent changes as positive steps toward broadening the definition of legal persons to include animals. And it's a cause he's been dedicated to for nearly 40 years, ever since he read the book Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. Now, I read Peter Singer's book in 1980 when I had a full head of lush brown hair. And indeed, I was moved by it because I had become a lawyer because I wanted to speak for the voiceless, defend the defenseless. And I'd never realized how voiceless and defenseless the billions of non-human animals are. And I began to work as an animal protection lawyer. And by 1985, I realized that I was trying to accomplish something that was literally impossible. The reason being that all of my clients, all the animals whose interests I was trying to, to defend were legal things. They were invisible. It was not going to work. So I decided that the only thing that was going to work was they had, at least some of them, had to also become legal persons. Now, at that time, there was very little known about or spoken about truly animal rights, about the idea of having a legal person or legal rights for a non-human animal. And I knew it was going to take a long time. So your objective at that time was to essentially change the designation of non-human animals from legal things to legal persons. That was your goal. That would be your victory. That was my goal. And... Uh, in 1985, I decided that uh, it would likely be 30 years of preparation, about 2015, before I'd be ready to file the first lawsuits that would have a reasonable chance of success, that so much had to be done. And as I began to try to understand what the legal history was of, of slavery and freedom and rights, that the one critical legal move is the transformation of an entity from a thing to a person. Nothing else matters. So back in the 1990s, when Stephen Wise was just beginning to lay the groundwork for granting legal rights to animals, he came across an interesting case. It's called Somerset versus Stewart, and it took place 250 years ago in London. James Somerset was an eight-year-old boy when he was kidnapped from West Africa. He survived the Middle Passage and he was sold to a Scottish businessman named Charles Stewart in Virginia. 
Now, 20 years later, Stuart brought James Somerset to London, and after he got there, James decided he was going to escape. One of the first things he did was to get himself baptized because he wanted to get a set of godparents because to an 18th century slave, one of the major responsibilities of godfathers was to help you escape. And so in the fall of 1771, James Somerset had a confrontation with Charles Stewart. Then James dropped out of sight. And enraged Charles Stewart, then hired slave catchers to canvas the city of London, find him, bring him to a ship, the Anna Mary, that was to set sail for Jamaica, where James was to be sold in the slave markets. Well, now James's godparents swung into action. They approached the most powerful judge, Lord Mansfield, who was chief judge of the Court of King's Bench, and they demanded that he issue a common law writ of habeas corpus on behalf of James Somerset. And a writ of habeas corpus is meant to protect any of us who are detained against our will. The detainer is required to bring the detainee in and give a legally sufficient reason for depriving him of his bodily liberty. Well, Lord Mansfield had to make a decision right off the bat, because if James Somerset was a legal thing, he was not eligible for a writ of habeas corpus, only if he could be a legal person. So Lord Mansfield decided that he would assume, without deciding that James Somerset was indeed a legal person, and he issued the writ of habeas corpus, and James's body was brought in by the captain of the ship. There were a series of hearings over the next six months, and on June 22, 1772, Lord Mansfield said that slavery was so odious that the common law would not support it, and he ordered James free. At that moment, James Somerset underwent a legal transubstantiation. The free man who walked out of the courtroom looked exactly like the slave who had walked in, but as far as the law was concerned, they had nothing whatsoever in common. So inspired by this case, you realized you needed to find your James Somerset, of course, a non-human version of James Somerset. I started to look for my James Somerset. I started to look for my Lord Mansfield. So how did you find your James Somerset? We began with those non-human animals who we believed are cognitively complex, extraordinarily so, and that we can mm. prove that. So the non-human animals who we have begun suing on behalf of so far are chimpanzees and elephants. Huh. And the reason we started with chimpanzees is because of all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles that, that detail legal studies about the cognition of chimpanzees that we can gather in one place and bring to the attention of the court to make it clear that they are autonomous beings, that they are conscious, that they are self-conscious, that they can use symbols, that they have language-like abilities. It goes on and on. We filed um, 160 pages of affidavits, and we say, Altogether, it shows that these are extraordinarily cognitively complex beings to the point of being autonomous. And judge, to allow an autonomous being to be enslaved is something that grinds against every idea of justice. And you have to step in and stop this. So, so how did you identify the chimpanzees you wanted to represent and then where to, to even file a lawsuit? What we did is we spent seven years looking at the law of all 50 states and 20 English-speaking countries, trying to understand what jurisdiction the law would be reasonably on our side. So we chose the state of New York. Once we understood that, we decided to simultaneously file suits on behalf of all five chimpanzees who we could identify uh, who were being held captive in the state of New York. And where were they being held captive? Well... Hercules and Leo were being held captive at Stony Brook University. At the age of two, professors had taken them from their mothers and were keeping them in a cage in the basement of the computer building. And they, they were being used in experiments to determine why humans walk with a straight leg and chimpanzees walk with a bent leg. But that required that they undergo general anesthesia, that they have wires wow. thrust into their muscles. Anyway, it was ugly situation. That's where Hercules and Leo were. Tommy was being held in a cage in a warehouse in central New York in a small town on a used trailer lot. And then Kiko was being held in a cement storefront on a residential street in Niagara Falls. All right. So far, 
you haven't found your Lord Mansfield, but you still you are still fighting this battle. I mean, you you are convinced this can be done. Do you think in, I don't know, in 100 years from now or 200 years, we're going to look back on this in the same way we look back on the original Somerset Mansfield case now and say, how could that even have been a case? That's insane. Yes. And it's not going to take 100, 200 years. And we have come close twice. Uh, one of them, Justice Barbara Jaffe in 2015, became the first judge in legal history to actually issue a writ of habeas corpus on behalf of a non-human animal, on behalf of, of Hercules and Leo. So we actually had a hearing very similar to the hearing that James Somerset had. And Justice Jaffe actually was quite similar to uh, Lord Mansfield. She, in a long decision, made it clear that she was quite sympathetic to our arguments, but ultimately felt that she was bound by the decision of a higher court in another part of, of the state of New York. But I believe if she had not felt that way, she would likely have ruled in our favor. You are trying to change the law in a big way. This is a big uphill battle. Like You may not see the end of this battle. Well, just like a human rights lawyer is not going to see the end of the human rights battle. The battle for human rights will continue as long as there are humans who want to exploit each other. But what I'm already living to see is the beginning of the battle. There really isn't a battle when one side's a thing and the other side's a person. There, there isn't a battle. The battle begins when both sides are persons and their rights begin to conflict. That's the battle that I'm already beginning to see. And that's the one that I was hoping to live to see and to bring about. And it's happening. That's Stephen Wise. He's the founder of the Non-Human Rights Project. You can watch his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about hacking the law and how we can change government to be more fair to the people it represents. Do you think that there are better alternatives to democracy or do you think that in general, democracy is the best way to govern ourselves? I'm a big fan of democracy. <laughs> this is Brett Hennig. And even though he's totally pro-democracy, he's actually got a big problem with elections. My ideal of democracy is that uh, every person uh, should have an equal say in the direction of that country, in the laws of that country. Of course, this is theoretically accomplished by giving one person one vote, but as most people know in practice, uh, it's not a practical equality. Most votes are wasted, many people don't vote, lots of people such as migrants, refugees can't vote. Um, so my ideal democracy is one where the considered will of the people is taken into account, and I think elections don't achieve those uh, ideals. So. In your view, are elections just fundamentally anti-democratic? They're fundamentally flawed in the way they're practiced now. Mm. They favor elites and they favor uh, moneyed interests. I mean, famous thinkers for, for centuries uh, equated elections with aristocracy and oligarchy. Uh, so I'm, I'm happily putting myself within these group of people and saying, yeah, I think elections are actually fundamentally flawed. And whether we can overcome that crisis, I think there's basically two responses that we can take. And one is to go down the populist, quasi-fascist uh, routes, and the other is to try to find mechanisms and modes to do democracy better and differently. But the exact mechanism for fixing democracy that Brett has in mind? Well, it's pretty radical. Here's Brett Hennig on the TED stage. So I'm going to ask you two questions, and I want you to put your hands up if you agree. The first question is, who thinks living in a democracy is a good thing? The second question is, who thinks our democracies are functioning well? Come on, there must be one politician in the audience somewhere. <laughs> no. But my point is, there is a massive paradox or contradiction here. I think there's two ways to resolve this paradox. One is to give up on democracy. The other option, I think, is to fix this broken system, which brings me to my epiphany, my moment of enlightenment. Its technical name is sortition, but its common name is random selection. And the idea is actually very simple. We randomly select people and put them in parliament. Wait, you want to 
you want to just put random people into a into a legislative body and say, here you go, uh, figure figure it out? Is that is that more or less what you're saying? <laughs> um, this seemingly uh, absurd idea is actually based on hundreds of experiments worldwide where this actually happens and happens well. Uh, Ireland is the most recent country to have randomly selected 99 people to talk about their constitutional ban on abortion, to talk about how they can tackle climate change, to talk about other things like fixed-term parliaments. These 99 randomly selected sample of people went through Weekends of deliberation informed by experts with public input into that process, and they came up with the proposal, supported by around two-thirds of them, to abolish this constitutional ban on abortion, which was then put to a referendum, and about two-thirds of the Irish people agreed with them. If these people are so good at it, why do we still need politicians? I have to be honest, that idea scares me. I don't want the first hundred people in the phone book running the country. I want people who are steeped in policy, who understand the nuances of how laws get made, um, who understand the consequences. Like, that's what I want. So how does a random democracy, you know, solve this problem? Elections don't produce experts. This is a complete fallacy. Otherwise, we would elect our brain surgeons. Um, Elections produce people who are good at winning elections. And to be good at winning election, you need a massive war chest of money. You need to be charismatic. You need to be able to inspire people with ridiculous tweets. I don't, I'm not sure. But it doesn't mean that you're good at making policy, at mm. lawmaking. So I would actually argue that a random representative sample with good process, informed by experts who, of course, uh, don't have power. They just have the power to give information, um, would result in better policy. Of course, you would potentially need these people to go through an induction process where they learn about how the system goes, how lawmaking is made, etc. The other option that we hand over the running of our country to a group of experts is exactly what authoritarian regimes argue. China, in theory, is run by groups of experts. So. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, you open yourself up to the accusations of authoritarianism if you say, I think we should actually hand over to a technocracy or something. Well, that's the thing. Like, so l- let me see if I understand this correctly. In a system that you think would would be a better system, mm-hmm. more representative, essentially you would eliminate elections, yep. right? You would get rid of people voting for elected officials. You get rid of yep. that and you would have some kind of system. A lottery. A, a lottery, whatever it is, where people are randomly selected from the population and they get a letter in the mail and they say, hey, you know, you're <laughs> going to be a, a representative for the next two years. And that's that's how you would do it? That's how I would do it. Uh, there's a lot of process <laughs> questions around there. But the key thing is that it works. When people do this, people make trusted, balanced decisions. And I, I think it would lead to a massive increase in trust in the, in the governmental system and the decisions that are made. When we come back in just a moment, Brett Hennig describes how he envisions randomly selecting our leaders. On the show today, Hacking the Law. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Hinge. Hinge promotes healthy relationships. Hinge features include deeper and more thoughtful profiles so people can lead with their personality. Hinge encourages meaningful conversations, and their Your Turn feature identifies who initiates the conversation, so there's no awkward silences. Hinge is built on likes, not swipes, for quality connections. Download Hinge in the Apple Store or on Google Play. Thanks also to Slack, a collaboration hub for work, whatever work you do. With Slack, the right people in your team are kept in the loop, and the information they need is always at their fingertips. Teamwork on Slack happens in channels, letting you organize conversations and information around projects, offices, and teams. And because everything you need to work is in one place, it's faster and easier to get things done. With Slack, your team is better connected. Find out more at slack.com. What happens when a family decides to adopt a child of a different race? All of my life, my parents have told me I'm just like my brother and sisters. But I wasn't, and I'm not. This week on Code Switch, transracial adoptees speak for themselves. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about hacking the law. And we were just hearing from Brett Hennig, who's advocating for getting rid of elections and replacing them with a random selection of lawmakers. So uh, I would make it voluntary. Once you sent out 10,000 letters to a random section of the population, you may find that only 10 or 20% of the population are actually interested in doing this. Of course, if there was a financial incentive that might uh, increase, you would then, for those who were still interested in that, you would do a second random selection of those interested, making sure you actually match the demographic profile of the country. So making sure you had gender balance, you would have 50% women in our parliaments. This, to me, would already just change the structure of the laws. You would eliminate it. The, the national government wouldn't be a millionaire's club. You would have lots of working class people, lots of full-time carers in there. To me, the, the laws that come out of such an institution would be so completely different, uh, but so much better from my perspective, that sort of wisdom of crowds idea that actually you need diversity, bouncing ideas off each other to find the best solution. And so if you exclude some part of the population for whatever reason, then you are limiting that diversity. But I wonder, I mean, if only the people who really want to be part of this are part of it, doesn't that already create a self-selected group of people? There is, uh, yeah, there would be this element of self-selection, but it wouldn't be people who want that political power. I mean, there's also these uh, famous quotes by John Adams and people, um, no, not John Adams, sorry, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy guy. Oh, oh, oh Douglas Adams. <laughs> Douglas Adams. Yeah, this is famous quote by Douglas Adams saying, uh, the people who want political power are specifically the people who you should not let have political power. Um, by randomly selecting people, okay, there is one step of self-selection if it's voluntary. You could also make it mandatory. But I would also propose that if you pay these people two or three times the average wage, the vast majority of people who earn substantially less than that would definitely put their hand up for two years of that kind of income. I would, of course, probably want to see it start at a smaller local level, perhaps with a bicameral system. So you would have two chambers, one elected and one randomly selected. In fact, there's a a regional parliament in Belgium who is now looking at doing this, and they would be the first uh, parliament in the world to instigate uh, one elected chamber and one sortition chamber or one sortition body. I wouldn't be surprised if people look at the sortition chamber and look at the elected chamber for the politicians busily backstabbing each other and engaging in their typical political power plays and go, well, why do we need that first chamber? Uh, But this is a path towards this uh, ideal. Random selection in politics has become so common lately that there's simply too many examples to talk about. Of course, I'm very aware that it's gonna be difficult to institute this in our parliaments. Try this, say to your friend, oh, I think we should populate our parliament with randomly selected people. You'll be like, are you joking? What if my neighbor gets chosen? The fool can't even separate his recycling. But the perhaps surprising, but overwhelming and compelling evidence from all these modern examples is that it does work. If you give people responsibility, they act responsibly. Don't get me wrong, it's not a panacea. The question is not, would this be perfect? Of course not. People are fallibly human and distorting influences will continue to exist. The question is, would it be better? And the answer to that question, to me at least, is obviously yes. I mean, realistically, is Is this something that can really spread uh, on a global scale in your lifetime? Yeah, we have our strategy, uh, and that is, yeah, to to first get these citizens' assemblies happening more and more often, which seems to be happening uh, after the Irish citizens' assemblies. The UK government is now putting aside almost a million pounds to... Uh, sponsor eight to ten local citizens' assemblies in the UK. So I can see that the word is spreading. Once one of these things happens in the in the world, maybe other people will take notice, maybe it will spread. I can see within my lifetime there being, for example, a US state legislature with a second body selected by sortition. That would be uh, an incredible first step. And I guess, I guess um, you know, ultimately it's a hugely uphill mm. battle yes. to try and yes. convince people and then entrenched powers to um, to try this. 
Yes. Uh, yeah, it, it, I'm not, I don't think it'll be easy. Uh, I don't think political change is ever easy, uh, especially fundamental political change such as this. But I, I'm hoping that uh, there'll be a generation of political leaders, potentially at a local, city, state level, who say, yeah, I want to I wanna innovate. I want to try something new. I think our system's broken and I want to see it change. Brad Hennig, he runs the Sortition Foundation, which advocates for random selection in democracy. You can find his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about hacking the law. How did you even start to think about what you wanted to do? I did study law because of a kind of dreamy idea about what the law is. This is Vivek Maru. He's a legal advocate. There's this philosopher, Jürgen Habermas, who has this book, Between Facts and Norms. And he says, democracy should be this big, open conversation about fundamental questions, like what kind of world do we want to build together? What do we owe one another? Where do we want to go together? And then law is the thing that takes the conclusions, the findings from those conversations, and turns them into actual rules and institutions that shape our lives. And I, I loved this idea of law as the kind of the thing that translates between our dreams about justice on the one hand and real life on the other hand, between facts and norms. But that is not the world we live in. A lot of the rules in a lot of places are decent. But there's a huge gap. Oftentimes, the people who need those rules the most have never even heard of them. And um, the systems that are supposed to enforce those rules are corrupt or broken or both. Vivek began to see this problem when he was a young lawyer. So he wanted to figure out a way to give the power of the law back to the people. Here's Vivek Maru on the TED stage. I want to tell you about someone. I'm going to call him Ravi Nanda. Ravi's from a community of herds people in Gujarat, on the western coast of India, same place my own family comes from. When he was 10 years old, his entire community was forced to move because a multinational corporation constructed a manufacturing facility on the land where they lived. Then, 20 years later, the same company built a cement factory 100 meters from where they live now. India's got strong environmental regulations on paper, but this company has violated many of them. Dust from that factory covers Ravi's mustache and everything he wears. Ravi says that if people or animals eat anything that grows in his village or drink the water, they get sick. Ravi has appealed to the company for years, He said, I've I've written so many letters, my family could cremate me with them. They wouldn't need to buy any wood. He said the company ignored every one of those letters. And so in 2013, Ravi Nanda decided to use the last means of protest he thought he had left. He walked to the gates of that factory with a bucket of petrol in his hands, intending to set himself on fire. Ravi is not alone in his desperation. The UN estimates that worldwide four billion people live without basic access to justice. But we've been choosing to ignore it. Right now, in Sierra Leone, in Cambodia, in Ethiopia, farmers are being cajoled into putting their thumbprints on 50-year lease agreements signing away all the land they've ever known for a pittance without anybody even explaining the terms. Right now, in the United States, in India, in Slovenia, people like Ravi are raising their children in the shadow of factories or mines that are poisoning their air and their water. There are environmental laws that would protect these people, but many have never seen those laws, let alone having a shot at enforcing them. And the world seems to have decided that's okay. So how does this happen? I mean, I know it's sort of a naive question, but 
how is it that in most of the world there are laws that on paper look great, but mm. but if you look closer, you would see that that's actually not the case. Yeah. How? Why is that? I mean, part of it is that uh, it's just much easier to put things down on paper than it is to bring those rules to life. And and, and in some places, in, in, in everywhere, there are still rules that are in and of themselves uh, repressive. The ones that we have that are good, they are often hard won. But that is not the only battle that you need to fight. You, you need to then fight a second battle, which involves actually breathing life into those rules, making them concrete and real for people. Something about law and lawyers has gone wrong. We lawyers are usually expensive, first of all, and we tend to focus on formal court channels that are impractical for many of the problems people face. Worse, our profession has shrouded law in a cloak of complexity. Let me come back to Ravi. 2013, he did reach the gates of that factory with a bucket of petrol in his hands. But he was arrested before he could follow through. Then, two years later, he met someone. I'm going to call him Kush. Kush is part of a team of community paralegals that works for environmental justice on the Gujarat coast. Kush explained to Ravi that there was law on his side. Kush translated into Gujarati something Ravi had never seen. It's called the consent to operate. It's issued by the state government, and it allows the factory to run only if it complies with specific conditions. So together, they compared the legal requirements with reality, they collected evidence, and they drafted an application. Not to the courts, but to two administrative institutions, the Pollution Control Board and the District Administration. Those applications started turning the creaky wheels of enforcement. A pollution officer came for a site inspection, and after that, the company started running an air filtration system it was supposed to have been using all along. It also started covering the 100 trucks that come and go from that plant every day. Those two measures reduced the air pollution considerably. The case is far from over, but learning and using law gave Ravi hope. There are people like Kush walking alongside people like Ravi in many places. Today, I work with a group called Namati. Namati helps convene a global network dedicated to legal empowerment. Altogether, we are over a thousand organizations in 120 countries. Collectively, we deploy tens of thousands of community paralegals. I mean, it seems to me that this idea of, of, of helping to establish community paralegals can really make change at scale, at, at, at a big scale, is just to create more and more and more and more of them, like all over the world. Basically, people who are not lawyers, but that are just as good as lawyers in terms of how they understand the law. I do think that that's, that's part of what we need to do to achieve this transformation in the relationship between law and people, is to open it up and to embrace the role of these sorts of intermediary players. I mean, in, in healthcare, for example, we, we never would think that all you need is doctors. You right. have a whole network of people. You have doctors and nurses and midwives. In a lot of places, you have community health workers. And so the, the folks that we, we focus on and we, we work with are sort of the equivalent of community health workers. We call them community legal workers, and they can play this vital bridge role. Hmm. Um, even in some of the toughest circumstances, when people know and invoke the rules, they can get traction some of the time. Not, not that we win every time, but they can get, they can get traction in, 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 in really powerful ways. I see the beginnings of a real movement, but we're nowhere near what's necessary. Not yet. In most countries around the world, governments do not provide a single dollar of support to paralegals like Kush. Most governments don't even recognize the role paralegals play or protect paralegals from harm. I also don't want to give you the impression that paralegals and their clients win every time. Not at all. That cement factory behind Ravi's village, 
It's been turning off the filtration system at night when it's least likely that the company would get caught. Running that filter costs money. Ravi WhatsApps photos of the polluted night sky. Ravi says the air is still unbreathable. Trying to squeeze justice out of broken systems is like Ravi's case. Hope and despair are neck and neck. And so, not only do we urgently need to support and protect the work of barefoot lawyers around the world, we need to change the systems themselves. There must be so many examples and cases that you come across where it's just you don't win. You 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 face these enormous odds and you face these enormous forces, and they and even though justice is on your side, you don't win. How do you how do you stay optimistic about this? I don't think there's another option. I we, you know we we take inspiration from the kinds of long-term movements that have managed to change things um, in various places, whether it's the South African freedom struggle um, or whether it's the struggles for freedom here in the United States. It takes time, it takes patience, it takes perseverance, it takes creativity. And um, those are qualities that I see in the paralegals we work with. And watching them gives me hope. Yeah. Equip the people themselves to make those institutions more accountable, more fair. Don't give up on democracy. Forge a deeper version of democracy in which law is something that everybody can understand, use, and shape. That's Vivek Maru. He's the founder and CEO of Namati. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On this side of the law, on that side of the law, who is right, who is wrong, who is for and who's against the law. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Hacking the Law this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Deba Motasham, with help from Daniel Shukin and Megan Shellong. Our intern is Dareth Gales. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Who is weak, who is wrong, who is for and who's against the law? 